0: like to invite us to turn uh, to our text for this morning, which is John chapter 21. John 21 verses 15 through 19. That's right uh, towards the end of the Gospel of John. And if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews, it's also on page 881. John 21, 15 through 19. And uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series here that's called Apprenticed to Christ, uh, and it's all about discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? A follower of Jesus Christ. One of the other terms that that word in the Greek can translate to is apprentice. So what does it look like for us to apprentice our lives to Jesus? That's really what we've been talking about in this series. It's been kind of functioning as sort of a biblical and theological foundation or background to the table groups, the new small group ministry that we've formed here. But hopefully even if uh, you're not uh, part of one of those groups, uh, haven't signed up, hopefully you're still finding some of this beneficial uh, Um, in talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And uh, this text is actually written by one of Jesus' original disciples, the Apostle John, and it takes place shortly after Jesus' resurrection, after he's appeared to his disciples again. And this is what the Apostle writes. He says, When they, that's Jesus and his disciples, had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters, brothers, and friends in Jesus Christ, I still remember the moment clearly. I was sitting outside at the youth retreat that I used to uh, lead for the church I served back in Wisconsin. We were having our annual solo time, something that we did at that retreat every year, where we'd all go off, students, leaders, and everyone else on the retreat by ourselves, all alone for an hour or two. It was meant to be time alone with God. That's why we called it solo time. It was time for just us and God to ourselves. And we always provided a a guided devotional that a few of our leaders would write. But you could really structure that time however you wanted. However you felt would be beneficial for you and your relationship with Jesus. You could go through that devotional. You could read scripture, spend that time in prayer. A number of our students actually told me that they would simply use it to nap. Uh, I never blame them, though, because given what I know of uh, how busy and hectic high schoolers' lives are these days, I think that actually was something that a good chunk of them simply needed from God. They needed rest, something we're going to start talking about a lot more next month when we talk about Sabbath. Anyway, it was my third or fourth year at the church, and so it was also my third or fourth year on this retreat and going through this solo time. But for whatever reason, I was having a hard time focusing that year. I don't remember for sure, but I think I was trying to go through that guided devotional that we would write, but I just couldn't focus on what I was trying to read. A thought kept coming up in my mind, rolling around in my head and distracting me. I know a lot about Jesus, that thought said. But do I really know him? Do I really love him? Because I think there's a difference between those two things. I think there's a difference between knowing a lot about Jesus on the one hand and really knowing him on the other. And while I know a lot about Jesus... That thought said, I'm not sure that I really know him. I didn't realize it at the time, but that thought, that idea, that reflection that I was having during that solo time ended up being something I would continue to have to unpack for the next number of years, right up until recently, actually. You see, I do know a lot about Jesus. Uh, After all, I've been a Christian all my life. I grew up in a Christian house. I went to a Christian church. I went to Christian schools, K through college. More than that, though, I also discerned a call to become a quote unquote professional Christian. I went to seminary, studied the Bible, learned a bunch of theology, and learned how to teach other people about the Bible and theology, too. And for the last 10 years, that's what I've been doing. It's not all that I do. Uh, There's some visiting here and there, some paperwork, some administration. There's a lot more email than I'd like. Um, But certainly a good chunk of my time as a pastor is spent reading theology, studying the Bible, and then like I'm doing now, reflecting on that, writing about it, and teaching about it. As one of my seminary professors used to say, the Christian congregation sends their pastor to God's Word so that he or she can study it and then report back what they find. And that's what I get to do. You send me to God's Word, I study it, and then I report back to you what I find there. But what I've realized, at least for me, is that that can have some unintended consequences. You see, as a pastor, I don't think this happens necessarily for every pastor, but it has a bit for me. You can get to know a lot about Jesus. You can memorize a bunch of scripture. You can learn about the Bible's original time and and culture. Um, You can come to some satisfying and compelling answers about big theological questions and debates. And yet you can still find that at the end of the day, or in my case, at the end of 35 years, you still don't really know Jesus. You know a lot about Him. You can teach and talk and preach about Him, but you don't actually know Him. Now, we do that with a a lot of people, actually, right? There's a lot of people that we know about, but we don't actually know them. Celebrities, athletes, politicians, influencers, we know about them, but we've never met them. We don't know them personally. For instance, I know a lot about Justin Fields, okay? As the quarterback for my favorite professional football team, the Chicago Bears, I've learned a thing or two about Justin Fields over the last three years that he's been our starter. For instance, I know that he grew up in the Atlanta suburb of Kennesaw, Georgia, population 34,077 people, at least according to the most recent census. I can tell you that he eats vegan. I know he scored a 29 on his ACT and had a 3.9 GPA during high school, both of which are better than what I had. Uh, I even know that he graduated with a bachelor's degree in consumer and family financial services from a college that will not be named. Ohio State. Um, I also know, at least I'm becoming increasingly convinced, that he is probably not the franchise quarterback that the Chicago Bears have been hoping and and praying for uh, for however many years, but what else is new, right? We've been down this road for so long. So I know a lot about Justin Fields, but I don't actually know him. I know a lot about him, but I've never met him. I've never talked with him. In fact, I'm pretty sure he has no idea that I even exist. And out there during that solo time in that retreat a few years ago in the crisp air of that fall Saturday morning, I had the same realization about Jesus Christ. I know a lot about Jesus, I thought. But do I actually know him? Do you? After all, if we don't know Jesus, can we really say that we love him? That's an important question, and it's honestly been one that I've had to wrestle with for the last couple of years. You see, if you just know a lot about Jesus, but you don't really know him, you don't have a relationship with him, you don't spend time with him, you don't do the sorts of things that it takes to have an ongoing sense of his nearness and presence in your life, then can you really say that you love him? I'll be honest with you, I, I used to really struggle with that idea. That idea of loving Jesus. Like him? sure. I like Jesus a lot. Respect him, yes. Worship him, of course. Think he's Lord and Savior and King and God, absolutely. Or I wouldn't do what I do as a pastor. But love him? I'm not sure that I've always felt that. Now part of that could be because I'm a guy, right? I made fun of guys last week. Should we just make it two weeks in a row? Uh, After all, guys kind of stink at talking about their emotions, don't we? And love is an emotion. So loving Jesus, does that get too hard for us to talk about? Too touchy-feely, too out of bounds? Is that why I struggle with this idea of loving Jesus? Because I'm a guy? I don't think so. I think that might be why some men struggle with that idea. But ask anyone who knows me, and they'll tell you that I'm an emotional person. In fact, Sarah and I once had a marriage counselor uh, tell us that we actually fill opposite gender roles in our marriage. I'm not kidding you. She said that Sarah was the stereotypical man in our relationship. She's like, Brandon, let me just fix it for you. Let me just tell you what to do. Let me just tell you how you ought to act. And I'm like, no, I just want you to listen to me. Like, I just want you to feel what I'm feeling. Like, I just want you to empathize with me, right? Yes. <laughs> It's not (laughs) true. You can ask her, okay? I'm the stereotypical girl in our marriage. Um, So I don't think that that's why I struggle with this idea of loving Jesus. It's not because I struggle with emotions. I think it actually goes back to what I talked about last week. Okay, last week we talked about prioritization, right? It's not that we don't have enough time to prioritize our relationship with Christ. It's just that we use that time to prioritize other things than our relationship with Christ. And unfortunately, that is what I have spent much of my life in professional ministry doing. For instance, I have spent years prioritizing things that help me get to know about Jesus. And they're all good things, right? It's things like reading the Bible and studying theology and reading books and listening to podcasts and sermons about what it means to be a Christian. And all that stuff is really good. It's really helpful. It helps me do my job as a pastor. The problem, though, is that at least until recently, I have prioritized those things at the expense of other things that would help me not just get to know about Jesus, but actually get to know him. Things like Sabbath and prayer and silence and solitude and all the other things that my soul needs, not just to know about my Savior, but actually know him. And I think that's part of why it's been so hard for me to to sometimes feel like I actually love Jesus. Because again, while I know a lot about him, I don't know that I've always focused on knowing him. And if I don't know him, can I say that I love him? And yet, that seems to be a primary qualification for being a disciple of Jesus. Loving him. Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary on this passage writes this. He says the single major installation, ordination, or commissioning question, a minister, teacher, or servant of the gospel, which is really any of us who confess Christ, we are servants of the gospel, should be asked is this. Do you love Jesus? After all, that's Jesus' question to Peter here, right? Right? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Not do you like me. Not do you know a lot about me. Not do you have all your theological I's dotted and T's crossed. But do you love me? That's the question Jesus asks Peter here. And to be honest, I think it's the same question that he asks us as his disciples still today. Bruner writes, we need constantly to come back to Jesus' question here in this text again and again and ask the Lord to make our love for him stronger and more secure. For that, first, second, third, and really only question honestly answered gives us as disciples a firm base for the rest of our lives. Put simply, if we claim to be Jesus' disciples, then we have to actually love him. All of this reminds me of a conversation I had recently with a friend. This friend is someone who really loves Jesus. I know she really loves Jesus because I can tell she really loves Jesus. I can tell that she really loves Jesus because she says things about Jesus and does things for Jesus that no one would say or do unless they really, really loved him. For instance, she told me recently that she would pick Jesus over her family if it really came down to it. Now, she doesn't think that that sort of thing is actually going to happen, um, and it's not that she doesn't love her family either. She does. In fact, she loves and likes them a lot. It's just that she told me she loves and likes Jesus even more. And so she said, given the choice, if it really came down to it, if she was somehow forced to pick between her family on the one hand and Jesus on the other, which she doesn't think will happen, but just hypothetically, she told me she would pick Jesus. She said if forced, she would actually forego, walk away from, and give up her relationship with her family just so she could maintain her relationship with Christ. And I don't know about you, But that challenges me like crazy. Because I think that's something that I want. Like my friend, I I don't think it's something that will realistically happen. I'm not sure how I might end up in a situation where I would actually have to pick between my family and Christ. But I want that kind of love for him. I want that kind of commitment. I want that kind of depth of relationship and desire to know him. In short, I want to be his disciple, his follower, and his apprentice to such a degree that it matters more to me than anything or anyone else in my life. After all, that seems to be what Peter's relationship with Jesus looked like. Now, it's not that there weren't some bumps in the road. In fact, if you've read a decent chunk of the Gospels, you know that Peter had a knack for finding bumps in the road in his relationship with Jesus. In fact, many commentators characterize this passage as a restoration of Peter's relationship with Jesus after he denied him three times during the night of his arrest. And yet, despite those bumps in the road, Peter expresses a genuine and heartfelt love for Jesus here. Three times here, Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And three times, Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. Peter seems to be saying, in effect, Lord, you know that I love you. Because when you came to me at the Sea of Galilee three years ago and found me and my brother Andrew and called us to follow you, I left my nets and my boat and my entire job and way of life behind to follow you. I left my, my, my livelihood, my community, even my wife back in Capernaum to follow your call and go where you go. For three years, I traveled with you, ate with you, stayed with you, kept following you, even when others turned away. And you know that I love you, Lord, because even though I failed at the end, I really was willing to die with you. You see, Peter had a deep, heartfelt love for Jesus. He knew him as his Lord and Savior, yes, but he also just knew him. For three years, he'd been with him, following him, spending time with him, and just being with him. And it was out of that relationship, that time together, that mutual investment in each other, that Peter's love, commitment, and passion for Jesus grew. And honestly, that's still how it works for us as disciples of Jesus Christ today. You see, there's... There's really nothing new or different about being a disciple of Jesus these days versus back then. It more or less works the same way. Put simply, we only grow in our love of and our relationship with Jesus to the extent that we follow him and spend time with him, get to know him. And to be honest... That's what the spiritual disciplines and everything that we're going to talk about off and on for the next couple of years is all about. Things like Sabbath, fasting, prayer, reading scripture and all the rest, they're not a list of legalistic stuff for us to do to become more spiritual. Instead, and this is what I've discovered the last few years is I've incorporated more of them into my own life. They are aimed at helping us follow and spend time with Jesus so that we can truly know him and have a deep relationship with him not just memorize some facts about him, not just check our theological and philosophical boxes, but really know him, really love him, really grow deeper in our faith and relationship with him. And that is important. That has always been important, but it's especially important now, given the culture and world we live in today. You see, we, at least here in the West live in what's now called a secular culture. I've talked about this before, uh, but what that means is that our culture has increasingly become post-Christian. What does that mean? Well, it basically means that our culture used to be pre-Christian, okay? Before Jesus and the church and the evangelization of Western culture, our culture was a pre-Christian culture, meaning that it was pre- or before Christ. It didn't have any faith in Jesus because there wasn't any faith in Jesus to be had yet. Everyone was pagan. They worshiped the Roman or Greek pantheon, whatever. They didn't believe in Jesus. But then our culture became a Christianized culture because Christian missionaries started to infiltrate Western culture and convert people to Christianity. And soon, after a number of years, a couple centuries actually, all of Western culture was evangelized and became Christian. And that was the reality on the ground for about 1300 years. We were a Christianized culture. But now for the last 300 to 400 years, our culture has increasingly been becoming post-Christian meaning that it is now a culture that is slowly but surely losing its faith, walking away from God, and abandoning the sorts of things that it used to believe. Now, just as a side note, and I think this is important, that's neither here nor there, okay? We can whine and moan and complain about that if we want and try to win some pyrrhic victories in the culture war that's currently raging around us, or we can stick our heads in the sand and pretend that it's not happening, but none of that ultimately does any good. First, it doesn't do us any good by making us feel like fragile, oppressed victims. Oh, woe is us, poor Christians, no one likes us anymore. Okay, that doesn't help. It doesn't do the outside world any good when we start to hate and resent them because we're supposed to be evangelizing them, and you can't evangelize people that you hate and resent. And third, it doesn't make it so that it's not happening. If we simply pretend that it's not going on, it doesn't mean that it's not going on. What I would much rather see the church do in a post-Christian culture like the one that we're currently in is recognize the opportunities that the church has for the gospel. And they are all over the place. The fields are ripe for the harvest. We just have to stop complaining and whining and pretending like it's not happening long enough to see those opportunities. Anyway, the point is, our culture is not like how it used to be. Gone are the days when everyone identified as a Christian, went to church twice on Sunday, and believed in God. Our culture used to be Christian, used to believe, used to think God and the things of faith were important, but now it doesn't. At least it doesn't believe any of that as much as it used to. Here's the thing, though, and this is important. We need to understand this. It's not just the big bad world out there that is experiencing that, that experiences that post Christian secular tug away from faith. It's us too. After all, as Christians, we still live in this culture, right? And so those post-Christian secular influences seep into us as well. This is the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe. And so we end up affected by it just like everyone else. We find ourselves struggling with our faith, conflicted and questioning what we believe too. I do, you do, we all do. That's the culture we live in these days. That's what it means to be a Christian in a post-Christian culture. It means that we become post-Christian and secular to a degree ourselves, even though we don't want to. And so what do we do? How do we maintain our faith in a culture like that? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to do that. But I think one of them is to go deep. Deep. You see, I've become convinced that the only Christians whose faith is going to survive this post-Christian culture are those who are willing to go deep in their faith. Put simply, nominal, shallow, rootless Christianity, which is what we've been trying to get by with for the last 1,700 years in the West, isn't going to work anymore. It just isn't. It used to. It worked to Christianize our entire culture. But the problem is we went a mile wide and about an inch deep. And if we are going to survive as Christians in a post-Christian age, we have to flip the script. We have to go a mile deep in our faith. We have to invest in our faith. We have to put in the time and effort to grow and come to know, really know, Jesus. At least, that's what I've personally discovered. When the questions and doubts of this post-Christian age tug and pull on me, and they do just like they do everyone else, It's not all the theology that I've learned. It's not all the philosophy. It's not all the apologetics and answers that I've come to that helps me. It doesn't hurt, but that's not primarily what helps me stay a Christian. Instead, it's this. It's knowing Jesus. It's spending time with him. It's learning to love him through the disciplines that bring me closer to him. That's what helps me maintain my faith. And that's what I hope can help all of us as well. That's really why we're gonna spend these next three years on and off talking about the disciplines because the world that we're heading into doesn't just need Christians. It needs deep Christians, Christians who really know Jesus, Christians who really love Jesus, Christians who are willing to really live as his disciples and apprentices in faith. And yet it's important to remember how this whole process of apprenticeship and discipleship to Jesus starts because it doesn't start with us. This is where the disciplines can run off the road, where they just become a checklist of things that we have to do. We have to do it. We have to do it. It doesn't start with us, though. How did all of this start for Peter? Well, we looked at this text a couple weeks ago. It started with Jesus finding Peter and his brother Andrew on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Follow me, he said, and they did. And now at the end of his time on earth with Peter, what does Jesus say to him again at the end of this text? Follow me. That's the gospel. This whole process starts with Christ. He invites us into it but it is his grace. It, beco- it begins by him coming and finding us and inviting us into a relationship with him. Don't just believe in Jesus. That's good. Don't just know about him. That's good too. Know him. Love him. That, after all, is what he invites us to do. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are a doer sort of people. We like checklists. We like getting things done. We like crossing things off. We like knowing the plan. We like having it all laid out. At least some of us do. And too often our faith can become the same way where we learn and we consume and we know a lot, we know a lot, but you invite us to a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Through your Holy Spirit, help lead us into deeper and deeper discipleship to him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.